0: Welcome to the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy Podcast.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy Podcast. Our guest today is Peggy O'Kane, President of the National Committee for Quality Assurance, otherwise known as the NCQA. Peggy founded the NCQA in 1990, and the nonprofit is now a major force in United States healthcare, working with policymakers, employers, doctors, patients, and payers to improve healthcare quality through standards, programs, and accreditation. Peggy herself was named one of the 100 most influential people in healthcare 12 times and one of the top 25 women in healthcare three times. I'm your host, Matthew Albright. My day job is Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous Payments, Z-E-L-I-S. Zealous's mission is to enable providers to simplify and save on their payments and claims. I also serve as the Communication Committee Chair for WEDI. That's W-E-D-I. WEDI is a national membership organization where the health information technology community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. It's a great time to talk with Peggy today and about NCQA in general, telehealth is undergoing a renaissance, interoperability mandates are coming due this year, and infused through it all is this question of quality. So welcome, Peggy, and uh, very excited to talk to you today.
2: Thank you, Matt. I really appreciate the warm welcome.
1: (laughs) Very good. And it's so cold out there that I think we need warmth where we can get it. Are Uh, you Matt
2: or Matthew? Should I call you Matt or Matthew?
1: So I was told told in a, a, a radio job I had Thirty years ago, that Matthew sounded more adult and more business-like. So uh, I've switched to Matthew since I was twenty-two. How's that?
2: <laughs> all right. Well, I hope maybe you want me to say that over again, then.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, that's all right. That's works. Okay. Well, we'll go because I, I think my next question to you is going to be on a, a personal level as well. Um, right. How did you? How did you? Uh, maybe tell us a little bit about your own personal journey. How did you uh, find yourself at a desk and and become inspired? Inspired all by yourself, really, to start NCQA.
2: Well, I, I have to say, this journey has never been all by myself. I've always uh, found others that were also uh, really seeing healthcare as kind of not as good as it needed to be. But my personal journey, um, I guess I'll start. I was in college, I was a French major, and I graduated from college, and I decided, no, I don't think I want to be a French teacher. Um, and you know, after trying a couple of other things, I uh, got a job in healthcare and I became a respiratory therapist, which was a new job at the time. And people know about respiratory therapists today because uh, they're the people that run the ventilators, you know, and in COVID times, ventilators have been in the news a lot. Anyway, um, it was new. I was trained on the job and, um, I was. You know, I worked for five years as a respiratory therapist in different hospitals in Boston and Charlottesville and in D.C., and I really was, you know, interestingly having zero engineering or management background, um, I could see that healthcare was delivered in a very disorganized way in the hospital. So um, there were a lot of lone rangers, including the respiratory therapists. Um, and so there was a failure to coordinate care that was, you know, there was a lack of understanding of what was supposed to be happening next to this patient. Um, so it kind of was the luck of the draw of who showed up and, you know, what they knew or what they thought. So, you know, even though American medical science was fantastic, um, the the execution really left a lot to be desired. Um, so I went back to graduate school, and uh, I remember sitting in a seminar on my first day with uh, you know about ten other people, and we were talking about what we wanted to do after graduate school, and I said, "I want to work on the quality of health care. And the professor looked at me kind of shocked and said, "We have the best health care in the world." <laughs> and I said, "How do we know that? How, how would we know that? And of course, since then, a lot of data has really demonstrated that we're far from having the best healthcare in the world. So, uh, the quality agenda, I think, was ripe for some, uh, you know, moving forward.
1: Very good, very good. So, NCQA, um, maybe maybe you give us the elevator speech on NCQA, just in case there's listeners out there who are unfamiliar with it, uh, and then tell us what you're most excited, uh, what what you all are working on that you're most excited about.
2: Yeah. So NCQA, our mission is to improve the quality of health care through measurement, transparency, and accountability. So if I'm a consumer and I want to choose a health plan and I'm lucky enough to have a choice of health plans, we're the people that are kind of like the consumer reports of health plans. So we have a bunch of quality measures. You know, How well does this plan do preventive services? How well does it take care of people with chronic conditions? What do the members say about this plan? So we have standardized measures and they wind up in report cards, they wind up in star systems, like with Medicare Advantage and also with the exchange. Um, and you know, they, they're often in contracts um, where employers will say, if you hit these targets, I'll pay you an extra bonus. And so we're the the measurement people and we're also the accreditors that kind of say, this is how a good health plan operates. It's It knows who its members are. It pays attention to people that need special attention. And, um, you know, it, it does the things that it does this well compared to its peer organizations. Gotcha, so, it, I mean, the idea of measuring quality when we started out was like a science project. You know, it was not in any kind of um, broad, uh, you know, Uh, Implementation. Um, What I, you know, in graduate school, I just remember reading articles about quality, and they were kind of. There was always a a shock and awe factor, which was, gee, we thought the quality was a lot better until we actually started looking at it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. That reminds me of my own report cards uh, too. (laughs) <laughs> uh, uh, but, uh, and, and it sounds like you're not just uh, uh, focusing on the provider, the hospital side, but you, you actually touch on many different uh, entities in healthcare. Is that right?
2: Well, actually, we our, our original focus was on health plans, but we also, our measures are very broadly used uh, for medical groups, accountable care organizations, um, all kinds of things. Um, and we also do a patient centered medical home program and patient centered specialty practices. And the common theme is that the 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 practice or the health plan or the ACO is well organized. It's watching what's going on. It's continuously improving its performance. So, you know, we brought kind of um, meant to healthcare, I guess. And you know, many people regret that, but um, we're proud of the role we've played. (laughs) Good. I I often say that we came in and we turned on the lights, you know, um, and uh, it it really is true that you don't you think you're doing okay until you actually look at the results, you know. Especially, healthcare is so incredibly complicated in the United States, and um, if you're not measuring and if you're not paying attention to what's going on, you can be sure that you're not getting quality. It doesn't happen by accident.
1: Yes. Yes. So since you started, then do you feel um, do you feel that quality has improved? And maybe I'll I'll ask that framed in the in the perspective of um, how healthcare reacted to the pandemic. And, and
2: um, yeah. Maybe. Well, I mean, I can't say that. Uh, I, I would say that there are areas of measurement that have improved. Um, and I think when you get a complete curveball like the pandemic. Uh, there was nobody really knew what to do with the pandemic in the beginning. So I think there was a lot of, you know, I mean, what you do when you don't know what you're doing, which is you kind of you do your best to kind of be observant, to collect data in real time and to learn from the data. It could have been a lot better um, if If we had much more organized ways of collecting data, if there had been better interoperability and so forth, we could have learned faster. Um, But, uh, you know, we, we have learned some things now. There are ways of thinking about the quality of COVID treatment and so forth, but we're not really in an area of settled science yet.
1: Gotcha. And, and I mean, you I, but you did ask that.
2: whether we've, we can point to improvements in quality for all the work that people have done, and yes, we can. Um, I think, for example, about uh, colon cancer screening, um, where I believe the rates have doubled, and I didn't bring the data with me uh, in the time that we've been measuring it, which is, I think, about 15 years, and where, as you would expect, the outcomes of colon cancer have gotten better. So, early detection is a big advantage in colon cancer. Um, You know, so uh, the fact that that so many more people are being systematically screened, nobody likes those uh, colonoscopies, but they definitely save lives and result in much better health outcomes. We can say similar things about diabetes and um, uh, cholesterol uh, control. Um, So, uh, I mean, in some ways, measurement... uh, raises the awareness about things. And so it happens in indirect ways, but when you can actually see your results and see that they're not where you want them to be, then you put in, in place uh, techniques to improve quality. Right. So that's the whole thing. It's measure, uh, you know, measure and improve and, you know, and, and then you get better.
1: And I think you bring up an excellent point, and and maybe this is an obvious point, but you made the analogy to uh, you know, you're the Consumer Reports uh, bit, uh, you know, you part, play that role in healthcare, but you you actually go far beyond it because when you talk about healthcare, you're not talking about the quality of the bedside manner, right? You're talking about saving lives, like actually having <laughs> better health outcomes and, and saving lives, which is a whole different kind of consumer report, right?
2: Yeah. Although I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, look askance at the quality of the bedside manner. Um, there are, um, I mean, you know, part of our evaluation process is, is currently the CAP survey, the consumer assessment of, uh, A health plan survey, Um, and that survey does ask things like, did your doctor listen to you? Did you feel like you got your questions answered and so forth? And interestingly enough, these things actually do impact health outcomes. So if you have a doctor that, um, you know, leaves a lot to be desired in terms of his, uh, his or her interest in you or their willingness to answer questions, or their willingness to have empathy, that actually can affect the outcomes. It, it can affect your trust in them. And there, there's, a, there's a real body-mind uh, part of this. And so yes, we do ask questions about, uh, how's your health plan doing? Were you able to get access to specialists? And when you saw the doctors, what kind of experience did you have? So we think that's all part of, part of the holistic view of healthcare.
1: Very interesting. Very good. So, thank you, Peggy. Now we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with Peggy Okane, president of the National Committee for Quality Assurance. I'd like to touch on her ideas about the digitalization of healthcare. But for now, let's take a quick break and hear from our producer Michael McNutt.
0: Weedy de- invites all healthcare IT professionals to register for our Quest for Health Equity, February twenty third and twenty fourth on Zoom. Thought leaders in the fields of health IT and public health convened for a two-day forum addressing the value and importance of data interoperability in eliminating health disparities in the country. For our keynote presentations, we're excited to welcome two of the nation's most influential healthcare leaders and health equity advocates: Dr. Georges Benjamin, executive director of the American Public Health Association, and George Halverson, chair and CEO of the Institute for Intergroup Understanding. This meaningful and valuable event features speakers from CMS, Siren, The Gravity Project, Harvard Medical School, AHA, and more. Review our full agenda and register at weedy.org. Enter the code PODCAST to receive 20% off your registration fee. Sign up today for The Quest for Health Equity, February 23rd and 24th.
1: We're back and we're talking with Peggy O'Kane, president of the National Committee for Quality Assurance on another episode of the Collective Voice of Health IT, a weedy podcast. So, uh, uh, Peggy, you mentioned uh, interoperability rules and, and how w- we may not have been as prepared as we could have been for this pandemic, at least in terms of uh, gathering data or having access to the data uh, to get a better pulse on where the pandemic was. So how do you see uh, interoperability uh, playing out over the next year or two? And will we be ready, do you think, uh, for the next pandemic, God, God forbid, uh, a few years from now?
2: Well, I don't know about being ready for the next pandemic. It takes more than interoperability for that, as we learned the hard way. But um, I think that, you know, it's how much money did we spend on the High Tech Act? Um, it was It was in the billions, yes. right? Yes. We've got a lot of data out there about healthcare. And yet, if you're a practitioner, you, you can't even find um, what you need at the time of time of practice many many times uh, because patients are going you know between un un uh, unlinked practices and so forth it really is important that you know that you know you're seeing this patient today but somebody else has been seeing them uh, uh, last month and you need to know kind of you need to get a picture of what's going on with this patient. And currently the data is just sitting out there, hidden away, balkanized, you know, like the Balkans and in Europe, um, not available at the point of care. So how NCQA got it, you know, I mean, we've been, you know, kind of watching with uh, real interest and disappointment, actually. I think we all thought that once people had electronic medical records, electronic health records, uh, that for example, quality measurement would be a lot easier. And it hasn't turned out to be that way. Mm-hmm. And that's just a real shame. And, you know, we still have very clunky quality measurement. I say that as, a, as one of the leading quality measurers in the country. But we really need to get to a point when the most important thing that's happening is taking care of patients, right? Mm-hmm. And the practitioner ought to have at the point of, of care or of their interaction, um, they ought to have the information they need to do the right thing. And that's leaving aside visions of virtual healthcare, care, where I think um, healthcare is going to look very, very different in the next five to 10 years. Um, but, you know, we still have situations where a physician is seeing a patient with Congestive heart failure, and they can't find their ejection fraction, and so they don't know. They don't know how was this patient doing last month. You know, it, it's 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 hidden away. It's it's stored differently in every medical record. Uh, you can't even use it for quality measurement, let alone at the point of care. So, I you know, I look at this. We came at it as we thought naively. Okay, so if we digitize quality measurement it can just come out of the same data that's used to treat the patient. But it turns out that this, since that's not organized in a highly efficacious way, the quality measurement data doesn't come out either. And so we've embarked on a journey to digitalize HEDIS for, you know, our measurement system. But, you know, in the process, we, of course, came to came to realize very, very quickly that this is way bigger than quality measurement and that we need kind of a uh, a kind of great leap forward, if you will, in healthcare data. And, um, you know, the, the government has done a good job with its new interoperability rules. Uh, I think that there is a shared vision out there of what healthcare could be if it's really enabled by, by data at the point of care. It can be a learning system. It, uh, we can have much more customized care. We can have quality measurement that's kind of a, you know, a byproduct of, of the delivery system. And we can even use AI to figure out um, what's the best care for Mrs. Jones who has this complicated picture. So you can't do any of that with the current state of quality. So it's really holding us back. And it's a, it's a tragedy of the commons because nobody can really do this right unless, unless the system is organized properly.
1: And do you feel like the interoperability rules, and the way I understand them, right, is that you're they're creating bridges now? So if now, like you said, you had balkanization of the the data. Now the yeah. interoperability is going to at least uh, create bridges or require bridges uh, to be open uh, between exactly. tools, right? Is that's that all right. we need, or is there more that we need? No,
2: that's not. A, <laughs> <it's> never <laughs> that easy. I mean, part of it is that the data the data itself is part of the problem, but it's not it's not the whole thing. I mean, we also have delivery systems that are completely fragmented. And, you know, you mentioned telehealth before, or we're going to talk about telehealth in a few minutes. And telehealth, I think, offers yet another opportunity to kind of fragment care delivery or to transform care delivery into something that's really holistic and coordinated and Really gets the best results for the healthcare dollar. So it's the organization of care as well uh, that contributes to the the kind of mediocre results we get for all the money we spend. More than you know, we spend twice as much as the next highest spending com- country in the world, mm-hmm. and yet our results are not as good. And so we've got a long way to go.
1: Yeah. So you touched on telehealth and telehealth, I think a great kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, a story to tell that kind of emphasizes a lot of this, this these issues. I think about uh, telehealth, and I think you know my company gives me a number to call. So I don't know who's going to be on the end of that that uh, number, uh, the other side of that Zoom call or whatever it is when I'm talking to them, and they certainly don't know what my uh, my medical history is. So right. so certainly during the pandemic we went different places, or we'd go to a you know government testing site, or we were we were going to lots of different places for our healthcare that wasn't necessarily connected to our past. So Absolutely. I'm, I'm, yeah. So so I'm wondering. Um, at, at, there's a good example, but what is NCQA doing around the telehealth, and then maybe your broader idea of where telehealth will bring us?
2: Yeah, uh, well, uh, I, we uh, we jointly convened a task force on telehealth uh, with the American Telemedicine Association and the, the Alliance for Connected Care, and they're both telehealth groups. And uh, you know, we learned a lot. There were people there from uh, who have really kind of they're at the cutting edge of telehealth uh, utilization right now. And so we we all learned a lot and shared a lot and we tried to map out what are the important issues with telehealth. And um, so we are, um, we are in the process of developing uh, some evaluation programs for telehealth. One is for uh, medical homes that want to have a distinction in telehealth, you know, so you know we have this wonderful medical home program that we're incredibly proud of that has transformed a lot of primary care and really made the promise of primary care real in so many places in this country Um, and now I think with telehealth it can make it even more powerful and and more efficient Um, so uh, but what we don't want to see is where Telehealth vendors come in; they do their thing, and now it's just another like urgent care, or you know, another place to have care that's never connected back to somebody that's looking at me as a patient and I getting the right care. So uh, we, you know, this business about having um, coherent structures for delivery of care is a big issue, and I think telehealth will enable those coherent delivery systems. To kind of leap forward and leapfrog over the fragmented system, so I think it's going to be very exciting to see what people do with it. Um, if you're not tethered to like the idea of I have to bring somebody into the office in order to have have the the blood drawn on them, if you can have them at home with with wearables, uh, and and you can have a monitoring system that's able to monitor much more frequently than you ever did for much less money. And you can, you kind of can use your time with that patient really effectively, not doing those little, those little tasks, but really talking to them about how to, how to like, look at their own data and, and be empowered to, to take care of themselves. This is no small feat, but um, I think the promise of it is tremendous and, you know, so we've already seen Lavango and TeleDoc are combined and they're gonna be new players coming into the space. Um, We see that the big, uh, the fan companies over, uh, you know, the high tech companies looking with interest in this. Um, And um, so we think that there's also a role though to make sure that patients are protected uh, from the, uh, the the kind of legendary dog on the internet uh, you know that people are are credentialed properly that the care is done properly that because it's distant it's not less than you know you don't you don't use uh, telehealth for every clinical scenario but it can really uh, do a lot that that the the normal way or the, the way up until now that we've been delivering care can't possibly compete with um, so I think, the, the, the tricky part for an accreditor is to figure out what are the standards that really are going to protect patients in the short term, and how do we uh, allow the flourishing of innovation uh, with, with uh, telehealth um, and don't stand in the way of it with our kind of regulatory kind of mindset. So it's always a challenge, but um, it's a very, very exciting time. Uh, to be in the role that, that I'm in, for example.
1: Yeah, very interesting. And that uh, that's an interesting balance between allowing for innovation and yet putting up at least a few guardrails, uh, yeah. right, so that people yeah. – and, and maybe touch on that for a bit. Um, so uh, I, I think I, I understand the guardrails, the idea of um, you know, saving the patient from you know, fraudulent behavior. Or yeah. but, but when I think about a telephone call or a Zoom call with my doctor, or, or let's say I'm a hospital system or I'm a health plan thinking about investing in, in a, a, a kind of tool, what would be like a value add? Like what would be a high quality uh, uh, telemedicine uh, product? What, w- what would that look like?
2: Well, let me, let me talk about a use case, okay? Okay, good. So let's say um, I am a person with diabetes and I'm a fragile diabetic or brittle diabetic and um, we're having a hard time getting my sugar under control. So, uh, you know, new devices are already out there. They're not in widespread use that are going to continuously monitor my sugar. And so um, I can be logging into an app what I what I've been eating, and it can be continuously watching my sugar, and it can say whatever you ate at two thirty there uh, really made your sugar spike. Now this sounds good, but it could also be we have to, we have to think about the human side of this and what does the person feel like. Uh, do they feel like they're now walking around with an ankle bracelet on, right? Um, Mm. So uh, there's a lot to be learned about how to effectively use these new technologies in a way that helps patients build their own self-efficacy and doesn't leave patients behind maybe that can't keep up with the technology or uh, for whatever reason um, are intimidated by it. So... Uh, you know, as usual, you, you kind of have to bring what the patient needs to the to the situation, and um, so one size will not fit all at all.
1: I think it's very exciting, right? And I love that uh, there's that whole be- behavioristic aspect of it, which means yeah. we probably have a lot to learn from other industries, right? Game theory and Absolutely. what makes people click, or all these. Well, it's
2: behavioral steps. economics. I think that that you know really comes out of comes out of psychology, you know, and it's kind of things like, you know, we're predictably irrational. You know, if right. you think about that book, um, you know, there are things that we do we can predict that you know like. Those of us that think about patient education and, you know, quality, I think we always have a, a paradigm of this is what I would do if somebody told me this. And um, it turns out most humans, including us, aren't, aren't wired that way. Right. And so, so you've really got to be very respectful and um, pay attention to how, how is this affecting this patient and their psyche, not just their blood sugar, right? Yes.
1: Yes, because that's the part of the holistic uh, approach you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, terrific. So uh, I'm going to give you a few few minutes uh, to just tell us where you think uh, U.S. healthcare is headed, and is that a ideal, uh, uh, maybe the ideal state, or maybe you don't? Okay, so I'll
2: tell you what I think is ideal. Good, good. I think I think we need everybody to be covered. Um, I think if everybody's not covered, then there's a kind of a game that gets played about you know. Can I, uh, you know, can I push this person out of my system because they're sick? You know, uh, you know, so I, I think we we have right now we have Medicare, which um, I'm biased because I think Medicare Advantage is a really great program uh, that holds plans accountable and where, you know, if they if they waste money, they lose money. So that's a good thing. We have regular Medicare with all kinds of different demonstrations and ACO like uh, demonstrations, you know, where maybe you, you say to the delivery system, okay, you're gonna be at risk. And um, so if you, if you practice in a highly efficient way, you're gonna make more money than if you practice in an inefficient way. And and plus we wanna see your outcomes, right? Mm-hmm. But um, the rest of Medicare, uh, most of it still uh, is, you know, can be as chaotic as, as ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the employer side, the employers are self-insured. Uh, that means that it, typically it's, uh, you know, there's not necessarily uh, the kind of incentives uh, to get value uh, for the for the payer and um and you know there's there's a one on one relationship between the um the employer and the payer um so uh it could be could be a lot better. Medicaid, I think right now is having a uh, a managed care moment, and um you know there there lots of Medicaid lives have gone into managed care. And Medicaid directors and chief medical officers like that because they feel like they can see what they're actually buying for the money. Um, You know, so this is the biggest budget item in any state. So um, people are worried about how much money is going into Medicaid and what they're getting out of it. Um, So we have right now sort of a patchwork with some very promising areas and, uh, you know, of doing the right thing and having a rational approach to getting value. And we still have a lot of the system that needs to be um, rationalized. And the worst part is we still have millions of Americans who aren't insured. And, you know, you saw what happened with covid I, it was so shocking to me how fast people lost their insurance when they lost their jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and sometimes people got COVID and, you know, we know that there are lots of examples of people who came out of, of COVID with lifetime problems. Uh, these are, you know, uh, things they're going to be living with and we're all going to be paying for uh, for the rest of their lives. So I think we should have a payment system that covers everybody, and I think there should be accountability for everybody for value and quality.
1: Yeah, very good. And I I think the takeaway that I think is great, and I'm going (laughs) to borrow this the next time I talk about it, is what you point out with Medicare Advantage and managed Medicaid is that – this is like a great moment because we're actually aligning the fact that better quality outcomes will make you money, whether you're the hospital or the plan, right? And that's a great direction to be headed.
2: Yeah, that's what you want. And, you know, I mean, but even the point about efficiency, right? Uh, You know, part of what's going, like with telehealth, um, if if you're Medicare, for example, and you're just kind of paying for telehealth visits. You're going to be very worried about fraud, about people doing extra visits that they don't have to because it's convenient and easy. Um, when you have a value-based payment system, then you have alignment of the incentives for Medicare and the patient and the, uh, the whoever is delivering the care. So that's what we need. We need that alignment of incentives.
1: Right, right. Very good. Uh, appreciate the insights, Peggy. Uh, before we sign off, do you have any resources uh, or places you want to send listeners uh, to look at or to read um, for more information?
2: Well, I would recommend our website. We do a great job of putting all kinds of interesting links on our website. Um, you can also find recordings. Uh, we just did a quality series, a speaker series. Um, and you can find those. Um, there are all kinds of resources. It's ncqa.org, and um, uh, we love to have visitors. So come, come and and learn and look. Uh, we're we're kind of evangelical about quality. So we want we want people to believe that quality needs to be better than it currently is. And so the more people we can convince, the better off we all are.
1: Very good. Great place to end. Thank you. Thank you, Peggy O'Kane president of the National Committee for Quality Assurance. This has been the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast where the health information technology community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. Find this episode and many more on our website, weedydog.org. Thank you all for joining us and be safe.